The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. We are naturally fascinated by what's just out of our reach, or in the case of downtown Wilmington, what's just beneath our feet. Perhaps the most popular legend that still winds through Wilmington's historic district is the half-dozen passageways that run underneath it. For more than 200 years, these arched passages have, in some ways, been a repository for every facet of this region's history. Pirates, slaves on the Underground Railroad, prisoners tunneling out of jail, and even illicit lovers in need of a hideout. All of them are said to have used the tunnels in some form or fashion since the colonial period. But is it true? Legend thrives at the intersection of speculation and possibility. We share with family and friends stories that are so crazy and salacious they must be true. And when it comes to Wilmington's underground tunnels, what's been lost to time is the perfect place for legends to be born. Hello and welcome to Berguin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore, a podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region through the history of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director for the Berguin Wright House and Gardens here in Wilmington, and I'm your host for this podcast. This season on Berguin Wright Presents we are cracking open the essential local history text, Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear Region, published in 1956 by famed historian Lewis T. Moore. Each episode, we take a chapter from the book and interrogate the fact and fiction of that story as told by Lewis. What's true? What's fabrication for the sake of a good story? This season, we're going to get to the bottom of why these stories have survived for centuries in some cases, and what they have to say about the Cape Fear today. This episode, we're going to navigate one of the most talked about legends in this region's history, the so-called tunnels underneath the city. In a chapter titled, Ancient Streams Crossed Streets in Midtown. In it, Lewis shares with his readers names like Jacob's Run, Rock Spring, Horse Pond, and Tanyard Branch. For more than a century, 
rumors, speculation, and whispers have said these passages beneath the city were used by pirates smuggling their riches, slaves fleeing to freedom on the Underground Railroad, prisoners breaking free of their cells, and even secret lovers looking to slip away from the public eye. Often described as tunnels, these passageways are actually quite narrow and short, and don't have as thrilling a story as a legend would have you believe. They started out as natural freshwater springs, cutting across town and feeding into the Cape Fear River. But in time, they were bricked over to make travel around Wilmington more accessible, and eventually, they were used as arteries to drain sewage into that river from the homes that set along their path. Like I said, not as flashy as you may have heard. But that doesn't mean there isn't a fascinating and important story to be told down in those tunnels. What was it like to live in a young Wilmington that had large natural streams flowing alongside its streets? What is it like to work against time and progress to save what's left of them? And how have some of the region's defining stories been preserved in the public consciousness because of their association with what lies beneath Wilmington? We'll answer these questions and more on this episode of Berguin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore. Joining the show today is John Schleyer, Executive Director of the Public Archaeology Corps in Southeastern North Carolina. John, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, this is the legend that people most often bring up to us at the Bergwin Wright House. These tunnels, these passages underneath the city. Mm -hmm. It is perhaps the most enduring legend in Wilmington because it's the one that we can't really see. Mm -hmm. And yet it's just beneath our feet. And so it's a popular one. And I really am excited to have you here today to talk about it. But before we do, I want to give people some context about your experience and your work locally. So can you tell us a little bit about what the Public Archaeology Corps is? Sure. So uh, we formed a Public Archaeology Corps, PAC for short, a uh, little, probably around 10 years ago. And uh, the, the, the idea for PAC came about actually long before 10 years ago as an undergrad uh, in the 90s. Uh, some of my introduction to archaeology and introduction to anthro courses, they spoke about, you know, the vast archaeological resources that we have here in the United States, but how many sites are lost due to development on privately owned land. Now, there are a number of basically legal mechanisms on the federal and state levels uh, which protect important archaeological resources located on federal and state lands like uh, military bases, parks, etc., etc. But we have no such mechanism for privately owned land. Uh, and it's, it's challenging uh, because we, you know, privately own the ability to privately own land here in America is, is kind of a, a sacred right. And, you know, we wouldn't seek to encroach on that. So you got to kind of think out of the box when it comes to how are we going to protect these resources? How are we going to keep them from being lost? So uh, that that kind of uh, that was the germ of Public Archaeology Corps. Perhaps we could use the uh, the kind of auspices of a nonprofit 
to inform the public about the archaeological resources that surround us, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the things is, you know, I, I think a common misconception is, uh, you know, uh, pe- people think that archaeology really only happens over in the old world, like Egypt, Greece, yeah. things like that. Uh, we're not old enough, they think. We're not old yeah. enough. Exactly, exactly. That kind of thing doesn't happen here. <laughs> uh, when we're doing public-facing digs, we have people come in all the time, and they're surprised to see that we're even doing it. So that's stage one, really, mm-hmm. is just to inform people of the presence of archaeology here. Uh, we also kind of communicate with private landowners. Uh, we try to kind of uh, empower people to think of themselves as... Uh, you know, conservators, protectors of these sites that might occur on their land, start thinking of uh, uh, in terms of a, a shared heritage in a way, kind of uh, take, take archaeology from an unknown thing to something that people begin to be fascinated and want to cherish and protect. So it's, it's a big part about kind of hearts and minds. Now, we do this through a variety of different ways public engagement, like what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also do actual excavations on privately owned land. And whenever we're doing any kind of work out there, we do it with a very public face. So we try to put blasts out, let people know where we are. We actually will put signs out on the streets yeah, and people come in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just a, a kind of a great way, you know, because you can tell people about archaeology and how cool it is. But when they actually come in, you know, we've had people just kind of walk in and be utterly fascinated by what they see. And they actually wind up becoming repeat volunteers. Kind of the whole idea of Public Archaeology Corps, uh, I think it's designed to work anywhere in the country. But it's especially necessary here where we're kind of a young up and coming city. Mm -hmm. We're doing a lot of expansion and development. But I mean, literally here in downtown Wilmington, you can't stick a shovel in the ground without finding, you know, Something. a historic ceramic shirt. Uh, there's even, you know, Native American pre-contact artifacts here. There's from all different time periods. Well, speaking of depth, this all is how you kind of interacted with these tunnels, these passages that we're going to sure. talk about today. Sure. Before we kind of jump into them, I want to give people some some background because... The misconception is that these tunnels were built in this town as a means of getting around, but really they predate the town because Mm -hmm. they were streams, they were creeks, they Mm -hmm. were literal natural waterways that used to cut across Wilmington, which for us that live here today or who visit, it seems so odd to think of water cutting through downtown. Now we think of asphalt and buildings Mm -hmm. and development, Mm -hmm. but... There used to be a natural stream system through this town, and that's where these tunnels originate. Now, that poses an issue because they are natural, so they flood. They are hard to traverse. And so in the 1700s, as this town is growing, you see an effort to try and determine the best way to develop this town with also acknowledging the fact there are waterways running Mm -hmm, through it. mm -hmm. And so the best way to do it at least in the 1700s, was to line these waterways and then brick over them. The best way to, one, control how they were affecting the land above them, but also for people to traverse them with horses and carriages and eventually cars, roads, things like that. And Mm -hmm. so the origin of these tunnels 
isn't as sexy as people would have you believe. And we're going to talk about (laughs) exactly, you know, we're going to talk about the legends and and Mm -hmm. the things, the pirates and everything that go along with it. But these really are part of the natural world that was Wilmington before the Wilmington we know today. This is what was here before us. And all great cityscapes emerge from the natural world. Exactly. Because when great cities are founded, they're founded because of, uh, uh, of the geography, you Mm -hmm. know? Uh, so, Wilmington, you know, sits by the mouth of the Cape Fear, uh, which is, you know, as the name suggests, always a tricky waterway. Yeah. Uh, but it's a wonderful port, deep water port. Um, and the waterways would have actually, the creeks, the streams, they would have been very desirable to early settlers. Going back before European contact, the site, the site that Wilmington is on would have been inhabited by Native people mm-hmm. uh, that would have... Again, the same things that made the site desirable for uh, later colonists to settle, those factors would have been in key as well. Access to waterways, which was transportation. Um, The creeks would have been wonderful drinking water. Um, Access to game, you know, Mm -hmm. because uh, Native Americans, early settlers alike, you needed to feed yourself. Perhaps the first settlers didn't really, uh, you know, they probably had domesticated animals, all this other stuff, but there's no doubt that there are using some of the wild game in the area to help augment their diet. But then, as with, you know, kind of urban development, as as the settlement gets a little bit more successful, as you say, it begins to grow and you have these initial solutions like, you know, let's brick open these waterways so that we can still access them. We don't want to get rid of them. They're still useful. But what happens with uh, cities that you know develop over hundreds of years, you have these initial choices that are made. Let's brick them over, and you have additional choices of development which happen, and it just kind of builds and builds and builds and builds. Um, They're not thinking two hundred and fifty years. No, the they future. aren't. They're thinking immediate needs. Exactly. Let's get this done. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those choices you know, might be forgotten. You know, you have the choices made in the early 1700s. Nobody remembers them by the early 1800s. Exactly. And they move on and, and they, they kind of become folkloric. In Absolutely. A way. Absolutely. These tunnels, they are a, a figment of a lost Wilmington. This town is a product of what was happening when these were built over. Um, as you said, they were they were natural streams that were always going to benefit the people that were here. We certainly aren't the first ones that were here. Right. But they are feeding into the Cape Fear River. And in time, that natural movement was what made them attractive. They were bricked over, so they carried out waste from homes. I mean, mm-hmm. again, becomes very unsexy in time yeah. because it set along major streets. As we have said with all of the legends we've talked about this season, they change over time. And these tunnels have changed in what their original purpose was, uh, maybe you know, glossing over the the less than desirable nature of them, the functionality of them in the right. colonial period, and so right. they are um, they're a very interesting piece of Wilmington's history, and one that I'm glad you're here to talk about because mm-hmm. it's perfect. It's right beneath our feet, which is where Pack's expertise is. Right. Now, I will say that Jacob's Run is the the most popular, but we do have Rock Spring. We have Tanyard Branch, which, mm-hmm. from what I understand, was named after a leather shop here in town. Uh, and we had Horse Pond Creek. And so they all had these names. There's about half a dozen of these. They start just a few blocks up. Jacob's Run starts about the actual creek, 
uh, or stream starts about Fourth and Princess, from what we understand. Mm -hmm. And then it moves towards the river. Now it comes down Princess. It cuts over just across the Bergwin Wright House, just across the street. And then it cuts, it goes diagonal to Dock Street. And then it empties out into the Cape Fear River. Now, I won't go through every direction for all of these, but Jacob's Run becomes the most well-known because it was the largest. It was the one that is central to town. In the colonial period, it was large enough that you could actually bring a small boat up to about 2nd mm-hmm. Street, from what mm-hmm. we understand. Um, they called it, in some cases that I've seen, a mud market, because they could bring in fish and they mm-hmm. could sell them at 2nd Street. Now, again, something that seems so crazy to us today, that there was a stream large enough to bring boats two blocks up from the river right. from where we right. are today. Um, it's hard to get a car two blocks up right. from the river today right. um, with traffic. And so it seems so seems so odd to have these things be part of Wilmington's past when they seem so completely divorced of the Wilmington. And they would have been so important back then. Exactly. That would have, you know, no doubt been one of the choices, one of the prime, you know, kind of uh, influencers Mm -hmm. of the the choice for the sighting of Wilmington was the fact that you could get a boat up so far. What was your first experience with these, with these tunnels? Or when did you first hear about them or, or interact with them? Well, so uh, I'm, transplant here from upstate New York. Uh, However, you know, I transplanted here uh, a little bit over 20 years ago. I was a younger guy back then, and my first encounter with these tunnels was like, oh, all the folklore, you know, they're, you know, smugglers runs and, you know, the pirates built them and all this, this, this sexy folklore that Mm -hmm. we're talking about. Um, you know, and, and, and that's, uh, I kind of left it at face value. I was like, wow, these are great stories. How cool. Then kind of, uh, as, as, uh, I grew up a little bit and, uh, and began pack, you know, people would hear about public archeology span core and they would say, Hey, you know, we've got these things in the house. Want to come check out the house? So, you know, I would come and do the odd house visit. One of our first projects that we did was a cistern on Orange Street. So this was back in 2014-ish. And uh, at the time, you know, because we were kind of into cisterns at the time, um, we had a, uh, a another homeowner with a cistern in their basement uh, that the house had built around. And I thought, well, that's that's pretty interesting because I had a theory that the cistern we were working on didn't go to the current house that was building. It was underneath a pre-existing now gone house at any rate i went down to the basement to check out this cistern and you could see some older architecture that would have led into kind of these tunnels yeah uh which kind of piqued my interest i was like huh and the landowner you know kind of told me that it was kind of connected in there going by old memories here so forgive me (laughs) uh but you know that that kind of um you know led into okay well let's Let's look in because I am at this point uh, as director of Public Archaeology Corps. I'm I'm trying to kind of interpret history for the people here. And engage the public. Yeah, so let's give them good data. (laughs) So, you know, started kind of chasing down that tree of, okay, what, you know, what were these things? And then that's kind of when I started to learn what the the truth of what these uh, passages were and uh, kind of their original use and intent. So did you kind of venture into that opening underneath that house or was it blocked off like it was blocked yeah Yeah. it wasn't really much there it was just kind of neat um i heard stories of other openings you know people just coming to talk to me and 
you know, you got to kind of cherry pick what's real, what's not real. Some of it's second, third hair and not knowledge. Some people are like, yeah, you know, uh, my, my company does work in this building. We go to the basement. It's got this big tunnel, yada, yada, yada. We get that all the time here at the house yeah. because people hear that, oh, across the street at St. James Episcopal Church, there's an opening to Jacob's Run. Or sure. even under our house, people always assume that part of the tour is going into Jacob's Run or they ask about it. Yeah. And, you know, the the fact is, over time, you know, as we were talking about some of these systems, some of these necessities that happen with development, they get forgotten. Mm-hmm. These tunnels have refused to be forgotten for a number of reasons. One, by the early 1900s, there was the concern that they were nuisances because they were unstable. Right. As you know, we see through the 20th century, there's constant sinkholes because mm-hmm. these are colonial brick systems that have had a huge town built on top of them over time. Right. They weren't meant to hold the development and the, the weight, you know, physically and metaphorically, that Wilmington is today, on top of them. And so over time, there have been sinkholes. I have a few listed here. There was a sinkhole in 1951 on 3rd Street. There was a sinkhole in 1975 at the foot of Dock Street, which is where Jacob's Run Mm -hmm. is. And that one was large enough that it actually pulled a car in, according to news reports at the time. Uh, That same year, Jacob's Run, where it starts at about 4th Street and Princess, a portion of that street sunk in because of Jacob's run and it damaged the buildings around it. I mean, in the eighties, there were things like this. And my own origin story with this town's history is because of one of these sinkholes in 2017, one opened just a block away at second and market street. Mm. And it is Jacob's run. It was just a weak point in the brick system. It caused a small hole, but something that they had to close the road to fix. And I was working at the Wilmington Star News at the time. I covered it, and I saw the interest that people had for what was this. I just did a story about that, and that is the reason why I started even podcasting about local history. And so that brings us to today. So my origin story is these these tunnels, these things, this eternal fascination we have with them, even though technically— they don't serve the function that they used to for Wilmington. And if anything, they're dangerous because, right. you know, you don't have to worry about maybe falling through every time you take a step in downtown Wilmington. But they're unpredictable because they are closed off to us. Right. Early in the 1900s, they are starting to pour, as I was told, concrete in entrances or they were blocking off the entrances so people couldn't get in them. Right. But that doesn't stop the flow of water. It per doesn't. Se. Right. It doesn't. Or the decay of right. the materials that was used. And sure. so they are a bit of an unpredictable part of Wilmington's history. Now, I should note that these tunnels, you know, some people call them tunnels. Some people say that's not the best term for them. Passages. Mm-hmm. I was told a culvert system one time would be the more mm-hmm. accurate, you know, anatomically mm-hmm. correct mm-hmm. version of it. But sure. they are incredibly small. They are sometimes maybe three, four feet tall. They were meant to be accessible but not a leisurely stroll underneath the city this is yeah this is not the (laughs) subway system underneath wilmington Mm -hmm. some cases these are measured in inches not feet Mm -hmm. and so when people think about a tunnel system under the city they're thinking where you could stand up and reach up and touch the ceiling and you can walk through them that is what go have adventures and such exactly that's (laughs) what was made popular by the stories of pirates, of enslaved people escaping on the Underground Railroad, right. of 
my the funniest legend that it was a lover's lane for people to escape and go have dalliances with their with their sweetheart underneath the, the city, like under the boardwalk. Exactly. Or Except <laughs> under this boardwalk was a right. sewer system in the right. colonial uh, period, right. so I can't imagine it smells great. Yeah, sanitation was not good. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you, I'm actually impressed they made this much effort to create yeah. a carrying system to take sewage to the river because. If you've ever visited the Bergwin Wright House, we'll tell you they were dumping chamber pots into the street in the colonial period because that's the way mm-hmm. they got rid of sewage. Yeah, we see this archaeologically in the form of food waste, such as animal bones, shellfish, all that stuff, just piled up and, and buried. We think, you know, that we have come so far, but these were their means of just being modern, of, of trying mm-hmm. to create a way to make things a bit more sanitary. Now, again, we put a bigger emphasis on that in the Mm -hmm. modern day but these tunnels they are rich with legend and they are in reality rich with functionality and and just in the long term they are not the the most glamorous thing which is why them being the most enduring legend in wilmington is fascinating because it shows how legend can warp fact it mm-hmm. for the pleasure of the people who are telling it you right. know people are passing down stories to their grandkids that they live in a town where pirates used to walk underneath the streets they used to carry <laughs> treasure out now the thing that we should probably note and I, and I have a few of these here is the golden age of piracy is really over by the time wilmington is starting to be born as right. a city right. you know we we have two major pirates in north carolina blackbeard and mm-hmm. steve bonnet mm-hmm. both have been captured or killed by 1718 Wilmington is incorporated in 1739, and they are considered to be the opening salvo of the end of the golden age of piracy. And so this town and this country, it's developing to the point that is very inhospitable to pirates. Mm -hmm. And so a tunnel system underneath Wilmington, not just Wilmington, but a city 28 miles upriver, that's not going to be very desirable for a pirate, especially in the late 1700s when these things are being built. And so pirates as we think of them today, they are not running rampant when this tunnel system, this culvert system, is going to be built yeah, up. We have and a, a sense of law and order already in the town that it, would be kind of... Uh, exactly. Yeah. I would, I've told people before on tours that you know pirates thrived in places that weren't developed. Well, by mm-hmm. the late 1700s, so much of the East Coast was developed, especially here in North Carolina. Right. And so there just weren't those safe havens for pirates anymore. And certainly not a bustling port town. Now, that doesn't mean you don't get smugglers. That doesn't mean you don't get people who might use these tunnels to bring things in. There were less uh, extravagant legends of people using them to bring goods from the port to their businesses, smuggling them in so they didn't have to pay taxes at the at the customs house. Huh. Now, that seems a bit more functional at the sure, time. absolutely. Um, but again, these things are three, four feet high. That's very small to be dragging be goods desperate. up mm-hmm. and yeah, you would mm-hmm. have to be very desperate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another legend that we certainly encounter with this is that it was part of the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. Now, again, there's really no reason for someone who is uh, part of the institution of slavery, an enslaved person, mm-hmm. to go into these tunnels because they're just going to feed to the river regardless. They're not mm-hmm. going to feed out of this area. And so you do see escaped slaves like William Benjamin Gould in 1862. Uh, mm-hmm. He and 21 other uh, slaves escaped by boat on the Cape Fear River mm-hmm. at the height of the yellow fever epidemic. 
That was far better means of getting away because these tunnels were only going to ever lead to the river. And so I've seen people write about these tunnels in terms of slavery and talk about how if they were ever used by slaves, they were used by slaves to go down into to just step away from the world for a moment, to just get away Mm -hmm. here in downtown Wilmington. Urban slavery was quite different than rural slavery. Mm -hmm. Those who were here in the homes are going to have a bit more freedom. They would have passes Mm -hmm. so that they could go to markets, pick up goods. There was a bit more opportunity for them to slip away for a moment. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't use these to hide out until they escaped, but a large-scale exodus of enslaved workers here in Wilmington through these tunnels wouldn't seem very likely. Yeah, a a large-scale exodus probably would have brought some sort of authority. Exactly, and they would probably monitor these tunnels if they were. Now, again, Mm -hmm. we're talking about them at a time when they were far more accessible. Today, Mm -hmm. you can't get into these tunnels unless you know a back way to a back way. And that makes me incredibly jealous because I know people who have been down in these tunnels before they crack down on the access. Mm-hmm. And I would kill to go down in these That's tunnels. so cool. It would be a bit claustrophobic. It but... would be a bit claustrophobic, <laughs> but I would hold my breath if necessary. Yeah. Because it is such a important and crucial part of Wilmington's relationship with its own legends. Right. They are still there. You know, so much of what we talk about on this show and, you know, at historic sites are things that have long since been lost in Wilmington. Mm-hmm. These these tunnels, these passageways, they're still underneath the city. And that's why I think they're so fascinating because, you know, you still have, as I said, the Lover's Lane. Yeah. And then the one that is most feasible is prison breaks. Sure. And that ties here to this house because there was the longstanding rumor that Jacob's Run ran underneath the Bergwin Wright House. And as we talked about in the first episode of this season... Lord Cornwallis, British commander, Mm -hmm. is going to spend time here at this house. Now, as we debunked, he's not likely going to use it as his headquarters. It was too small of a house. It already had a family in it. But there were rumors that he was using our site, which was the city's first jail, Mm -hmm. as a place to hold patriot prisoners. And there were rumors that they were tunneling out underneath the house and entering into Jacob's Run and fleeing to the river through this tunnel. Now, as I said earlier... Jacob's Run is actually across the street. And right. so accessibility, they would have to tunnel quite a lot. Yeah, um, There was a small tributary that ran alongside this property okay. that was covered over, and it did feed into Jacob's Run. But Cornwallis never held prisoners here. That wasn't the function of the house, and so there wouldn't have been the people or the means to actually do this legend that that is so prominent here on the site. You have to really think about where these these passageways are going. Mm-hmm. You have to think about where they're sitting underneath houses, where they're sitting underneath buildings. Now, again, Wilmington has grown above these passageways, and they didn't always give mind to them. And so there might be homes, there might be buildings that sit over top of these passageways. But legend really is a lot more exciting than the nature of what as we've been talking about was just a necessity for a growing town Mm -hmm. now you have worked specifically with one of these rock springs so can you tell me a little bit about what experience you have with that one right so first of all the the rock spring was a huge kind of uh element of pop culture yeah back way back when there were several springs throughout wilmington so we have these streams but we also have springs um, again, another uh, site selection process way back in the beginning. 
But uh, of these springs, uh, the Rock Spring was considered to be the best, have the coolest and sweetest tasting water. So you actually would have ships pulling up to port and they would send their people in with barrels to, you know, re refill their water and they would go specifically for the Rock Spring. It was huge. Um, you had a, a number of businesses which grew up around the spring that would have its the name of it within their business, such as uh, the Rock Spring Livery. There was a Rock Spring Gin. There was a, like a Rock Spring Hotel. All this other stuff was huge. So um, I, I kind of find that personally fascinating, the whole uh, aspects of pop culture back in the day. Yeah, Jacob's Run gets all the glory today, but Rock Spring was the one that oh, people were massive. being drawn to. I mean, yeah, and, and from a folkloric perspective, it was often said that if uh, you drank from the waters of the Rock Spring, you would always come back to Wilmington. So you would have these reports in the newspapers of, oh, so-and-so went away and moved to Ohio, but... They came back. They must have drank from the rock spring. This was at a time when newspapers would report on people leaving town for the right, weekend and right. coming back. And so, yes, right. a different right. time in the world. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, your, your, your whole view of celebrity and socialites were a lot more narrowed. Everybody's famous in a small town. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> lot, lots of big fish. But anyways, the rock spring, very popular up until the turn of the last century. By the 19, early 20s, you had a lot of development, a lot of industry in the area, and the Rock Spring had become polluted, sadly. So it had become kind of a public health concern. So by around, like I said, the early 1920s, they closed the spring down. And there is one picture that I'm aware of that actually has the spring, uh, which was partially subterranean with its housing. So it was kind of had a, a brick housing that would have been visible from above the road. And uh, you would go down through these through this housing. Uh, they had bedrock kind of granitic stairs that were chiseled out. More on our interaction with that here in a second. But you would have gone down, you know, not a huge amount. It wasn't like uh, this descent into a cavern or anything. <laughs> it was more like, you know, maybe six feet under the street. This isn't the caverns in the western part of the state. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a little bit more modest. But still cool. Um, and people were, uh, you know, very, they would write very nostalgically about it. One person wrote about how, as a kid, they would go down to drink from the rock spring. And they would actually lay down on their backs and let it, you know, hit them in the face. Stuff like that. So that told us, you know, when we're looking for this thing, we're looking for a, a stairway. We're looking for some sort of a brick housing. Basically, uh, public archaeology... We formed, we had a bunch of, we tried to select for our board of directors kind of a, kind of an A-team of historians and archaeologists for the area. And uh, we had, you know, folks like uh, Chris Fonville, uh, Beverly Tetterton, extremely knowledgeable, capable, awesome historians, some of the best in the area. Uh, they had been researching the Rock Spring. Uh, it had been a research interest of theirs for you know, decades, they had what they felt was a probable location for the spring, which was uh, on Water Street. And so way back in, you know, I guess we're talking about 2015-ish, uh, they started talking about plans to demolish the Water Street parking deck. 
uh, to make way for some, you know, a little condominium complex there. This is um, just to orient our audience. Where is or where was that former uh, parking deck? Right. So it would have been located between uh, Grace and Chestnut Streets, where kind River of, Place is today. Downtown. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, as the plans for River Place uh, kind of were, were hatched, part of that was the demolition of the Water Street parking deck. So we were able to negotiate with the developers and with the city of Wilmington and you know Mayor Sappho. Uh, they they granted us uh, access to the site. Now again, this is this is kind of ballpark where our historians had uh, located the general vicinity of where we thought the site was. So we had a weekend. It's not an exact science. It's not saying. an exact science. It's not exact science. It's, it's, uh, it's like, a, you know, kind of like horseshoes and hand grenades mm-hmm. sometimes. So we had our general area, but now we had to try to find the specifics. We were granted one weekend to get in on this. Um, it's important for us in these collaborations with, you know, developers, especially on a very high scale project like this, we're not going to go in there and try to beg for more time, you know, beg for resources. We are just going to get it done. Take what you get. Take what we get. So uh, we were lucky enough to have a backhoe donated to us for the use for the weekend from a, a local company up in Pender County. So uh, our little crew went in there and uh, I had done some uh, some some kind of uh, work with ge- geographic information systems, which is a, a mapping uh, uh, computer program, to try to locate some you know let's get some more specific hotspots using old maps. So you know we 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 kind of chugged away with our backhoe, and uh, we found I mean it, it was ridiculous in our little survey. We found probably about five or six historic features under where the waterfront parking uh, the water the water street parking deck was that would have been totally interesting and awesome to dig on their own but because we had such a short amount of time and we, we had to just kind of take some pictures shoot a little video you know take some shoot some geodata with our with our gps and, and what and kind of features on. are you talking about so we had these brick foundations. Uh, we had brick foundations to buildings. They would have been like brick faces to warehouses, what have you. Uh, we actually found another cistern, uh, which, I mean, cisterns are always these great resources. And we actually wasted probably about an hour picking at it because it was just too cool to, to, to let pass. Asking a historian to be like, forget about this historic piece and focus yeah, on this and one. Yeah, and stay focused. It's, it's not easy. Yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy. So... Uh, you know, that first day we kind of, and plus we didn't know what it looked like, right? We're also like, okay, well, it looks like a cistern, but let's pick around a little bit. Maybe it's, maybe it's what we're looking for. Uh, we found the remains of an old gas station, you know, old gas tank, stuff like that. All, all these things as we were rolling through. So, you know, Saturday goes along, we aren't finding it. And then um, one of our volunteers, um, avocational archaeologist from Pender County, uh, Matthew Hillman, he, uh, he was taking the only known photograph that I was talking about from 1920, and he's standing back at the site. He's like, okay, well, come over here. And he's like, now look at this picture. It was, granted, the landscape was different. The buildings weren't there anymore. The, the, the built environment was totally different. But he was like, you know, just take the buildings out of it and look at the actual way that the land slopes. 
and stand here and do a little compare contrast. Picture, real life, picture, real life. You could see the slope looked very similar. So we moved the backhoe down to that area. It was probably about, I don't know, say 50, 70 feet uh, away from where we were working. And we started digging. Uh, we found some brick. We started exploring that brick and we saw that we had a course of brick that would have defined a wall. And we kept working around it with shovels and with the backhoe and clearing away uh, dirt. And by the end of the day, we found basically three walls that would have made a kind of like a, it was kind of like an open rectangle. Mm -hmm. uh, it matched the dimensions of the rock spring. We started hitting it with shovels and we found the flagstone steps. So by the end of the first day, we knew that we had found the actual rock spring. So we were all very excited. It gave us all of Sunday to do what we could to record it. The, the dimensions of the, the three brick walls were such that we could actually squeeze a backhoe bucket in there. And the guy we had volunteered to run this thing was, you know, he knew what he was doing. So, you know, we would get uh, uh, some, some scoops of dirt out. Volunteers would be picking through it, trying, trying to salvage whatever artifacts we could. We had screens going. You know, you put the dirt in the screen, shake it through, dirt falls out, you have artifacts. Uh, we worked on it, you know, late into the day, basically, until daylight faded. Uh, by the end of the day, we had actually excavated out to the base of the rock spring, by the time we got low, we had to do it with shovels. We were standing with uh, muck boots in there because it was actually holding water. There was a bit of water flow. Wow. Um, can't say if that's, you know, I wouldn't want to taste that to no. see. I don't think the rock spring was, you know, quite as sweet and cool as it was back <laughs> in the day. Uh, but uh, but we could see the all the architecture of that original uh, monument. A lot of the uh, stairs had been removed from it because there was an actual circa 1940s, 1950s uh, pipe going through there. Uh, so at some point they had actually dug down there, demoed part of the stairs, and then had this pipe running through. Uh, but that being said, we were able to find the base of the spring. And indeed, at the base of the spring, we could find this little, um, little alcove where there was a, a semicircle of brick kind of built up around an opening, and that would have been where the original rock spring flowed out of. And it matched the description, the historic description of the gentleman who said that he would, as a youth, lay on his back under there and let the water cool because you could fit your head under there, mm -hmm. all that stuff. Uh, so puzzle pieces falling puzzle into place. Puzzle pieces falling into place. And, uh, and, and the overwhelming weight of the evidence said that we had found it. Uh, we didn't find any artifacts that would have been directly associated with it, like you know, bottles of Rock Spring gin or yeah. anything. Or a sign like that, that says this is the this Rock is spring. the Rock Spring of <laughs> Wilmington. Yeah, but uh, but you know, we were able to recover some of the uh, flagstone steps. Uh, we found one near the top of the surface that we actually think was pictured in the 1920 photograph. Wow. Uh, we have that. We are also able to remove some squares, some little bits of the steps that were still wedged in the walls. It was a total salvage expedition because we knew it was not going to exist after we looked at it. Well, I think that's the inevitable question of people hear this and they're like, well, why can't I go visit Rock Spring now that yeah, you've uncovered it? I mean, gone. And is, is that the heartbreaking thing of working in public archaeology? Because you're working on 
property that is someone else's. It's no longer, you know, the public's. And and right. so you're going in to salvage what you can. I right. mean, you knew that this was not going to change the fate of this site. Absolutely. Yeah, there was nothing that we could that we could necessarily do about this. If this was located on, uh, say, you know, in my day job, I work over at Fort Bragg at the cultural resource program there. If this was something that was on Fort Bragg or on any kind of, you know, publicly owned land, this site would have no doubt had a National Register of Historic Places status. It may have been eligible. It could have even been listed on it because of the huge cultural import of it. So what would have happened is you would have, you know, you would have had a degree of protection for it. And if the site needed to be destroyed for some reason, then there would have been a mitigation package involved that would have been a huge, you know, uh, recordation project, uh, public facing, public outreach project involved with it. As it was, we kind of had to perform mitigation ourselves. Uh, So we were able to get on that Sunday, we worked very hard. We got uh, scaled photographs. We did scaled drawings. Uh, we shot video of it. All these things. We got uh, ge- geo data on it. We captured its location with a GPS. So we weren't able to actually save the rock spring itself, but we were able to find where it was. It had been lost for so long, and we were able to get images of it. So we have something to add to it from the only image of it from 1920. So that's all we can do. And we can kind of keep talking about it and, you know, make sure that this little cool piece of Wilmington history and pop culture is uh, remembered in the future. You have to wonder why there wasn't more fanfare, considering how, how special it was to this town. Yeah. When it was gone. I mean, do we think that they just filled it in because of development or or what do you think happened to it that it was lost for the time it was? Well, I I think part of part of why it was forgotten is because it was, you know, kind of polluted. It was like kind of used up and done. Yeah. When you dump sewage in the fountain of youth, we're going to stop talking about it. Exactly. Yeah. It's not making you young anymore. Exactly. Uh, Or bringing you back to mommy. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, not working its magic. <laughs> so, you know, by the time it's filled in, you know, you, you would imagine that the water was getting increasingly bad. You know, it's filled in, and then you have, you know, the it's paved over. Eventually, Water Street parking deck is built over top of it. I forget when that was built, 50s, 60s, something like that. Mm-hmm. By that point, you only have the very oldest citizens might yeah. remember stories or may actually remember the water itself. Yeah. So kind of as the generations die off, if you don't have any kind of lasting uh, uh, mythos still churning out stories, these things are forgotten. So that's kind of, you know, the sad part of life and and, and with the loss of the older generations. And that's the reason why, you know, a book like Lewis T. Moore's Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear Region, which is what we're basing this this podcast on. That's why they're so important, because Mm -hmm. they are writing things down. He was... A younger generation in the mid 1900s but he was right. recording stories from people who had lived in the 1800s who right. remembered things from people who learned in the, the or learned about them in the 1700s and so that's why recollections that's why you know recitations of these stories is important and right. now that you have firsthand experience of interacting with rock spring you can tell it on things right. like this podcast right. and then for people who work with you at PAC, and that's the important part of talking about these legends. Yeah. You know, we can debunk them 
all day. And I always, as I told you, I hate to burst people's bubble when it comes to this stuff. But fun, fun to debunk, too. Well, it is fun yeah, to debunk. Yeah. And there's still incredible stories. I mean, there is mm-hmm. still a very real era of Wilmington's history when people were laying their heads underneath Rock Spring and letting right. it wash over their face in downtown Wilmington, right. where today there is a huge mixed-use apartment, condo, residential, commercial building. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's a story from Wilmington's past that truly does not exist anymore. Right. And it, the work that you do is at least trying to preserve it as best it can in this world of development yeah and i think that there's a lot of importance to keeping these stories alive you know you have the utilitarian purpose of we know we need to know where these things are so that you know upcoming development doesn't you know isn't unhinged by it we don't have huge sinkholes opening up there's that practical side but there's also something there is something to be said about being connected to what came before us Mm -hmm. Uh, there's something to be said about you know uh, the, the, the acknowledgement of humans 200 years ago are the same as humans today. We still have our pop culture. We still have our adaptations. Um, I think that a deeper knowledge of what we, where we come from as a city kind of deepens our own lives to know what the people who came here before us, what their lives were like, what, you know, what they were into, what was, uh, you know, what do we get from pop culture? They got the same thing from it. Yeah, we all called Wilmington home, but they lived in a vastly different Wilmington. I mean, mm-hmm. it looked different. It functioned different. Mm-hmm. And yet some of those those things are still literally just running underneath our feet. Yeah. You know, it just happened to be that they were bricked over. And when you brick something over and it becomes a passageway under a town, it becomes a bit of legend it becomes something fantastical Mm -hmm. it becomes something mythical and the fact that we can't reach them anymore makes them all the more thrilling to talk about does and i just you know it's my final question i'm curious you engage the public you encourage the public to be part of the archaeological process here Mm -hmm. in downtown wilmington do people ever join or do they ever talk to you about these tunnels that's what got them excited about archaeology absolutely yeah i mean uh, we have people who come in uh, to our sites and they volunteer and then we have long-standing relations with them. We also have people who just see the sign and they're interested and they pop in and they have like, you know, 10, 15 minutes or however long their interest remains to just say, hey, this is, these are some of the cool things that get us into archaeology. Um, we have, we do have a number of people come in and talk about the tunnels and, uh, and you know, there's, Again, a lot of folklore in there. And sometimes I'll try to direct the people more towards, you know, away from the folklore <laughs> and towards the facts. Yeah. And it's funny because when I usually, usually the reaction is when I do that, people will tend to just kind of talk over to me, uh, talk over me. And, and you know, they, they don't want to have that belief shattered. Yeah. So it, it's like sometimes I don't even do it. Yeah. I'm like, they love their stories so much. I'm just not, I'm not letting Which is it. fair, but <laughs> as long as these stories are doing some good they're keeping these legends alive they're keeping wilmington's history alive and it's pushing people towards the literal act of preservation because of of things they want Mm -hmm. if people were interested how do they get involved with pac uh you can go to our uh web page which is uh publicarchaeologycorps.org uh that's core with an uh ps like marine corps peace corps Mm -hmm. and uh we have a facebook page 
Um, it's vastly out of date. Um, <laughs> but however, we do have all of our photos from past digs, including the Rock Spring, archived on there. Um, that being said, it's one of my New Year's resolutions to get our social media game back up to par again. And we actually do have some younger volunteers who are going to help me out with that. Okay. So uh, keep, a, keep a lookout on your socials for that. And there are opportunities for people to do it. I mean, the one that you've been working on, I think, for quite a bit yeah. is right here in downtown. Right. And, yeah. and I know that you create dates where people can come and help. And mm -hmm. so... They should follow along and they can join you. If like. Absolutely, yeah. The, the site that we're working on now is literally just around the corner. It's at 10 South Front Street. Um, it's across the street from Platypus and Nome. Mm -hmm. um, it is, uh, if you look at it from the street, there's a parking lot with a kind of crumbly looking old brick structure uh, with no roof. Um, it, it has been, uh, it, it was a structure that almost crumbled into nothingness, but the current landowner has uh, a, a great passion for historic preservation. He saved the building and he has uh, graciously allowed us access to do, uh, to dig. Well, and again, that goes back to what you've done with, with Rock Spring and, and this whole legend of these tunnels that there is so much that is still underneath us. There's still right. so much of Wilmington that you know, we think of as lost, as forgotten today, but there are still remnants of it. Um, and these mm -hmm. these tunnels, these passageways, the work you do, I mean, it all is still there. The, these, these passageways, they just happen to rear their heads just a bit more often with yeah. sinkholes and just, you know, weak points. I always like to tell people that they just don't want to be forgotten. And so Absolutely. if we keep telling the stories, if we keep talking about why the sinkhole happened, that it's not just you know, bad asphalt, but it is part of a colonial system of, of passageways that this town built so that it could develop into the future mm -hmm. that we are all living in. I mean, it just really enriches the connection between today and the past. I mean, now and then it's, it's all just this big process. And so I'm so glad you were here to talk about it because, you know, PAC is, is doing that every day when you're working with your, um, with your volunteers. And so I would encourage people to get involved and um, keep talking about, the tunnels. If you are ever at the Bergwin Wright House or you are with John, uh, share your stories that you know about the tunnels. It all is part of this collective communal experience. Right. Your grandparents or their grandparents probably interacted with them in some form or fashion. And mm -hmm. that's the only way we're going to learn about them today because you and I, as I've already said, unfortunately cannot go down there and Lord, right. I wish we could. And right. so um, we have to adventure. rely on what, yeah, <laughs> would. we'd have to rely on what people knew from the past. So John, thank you so much for being here and uh, I hope to see you soon. Yes, absolutely. And thanks for having me, Hunter. And thanks for doing what you do to, uh, to, to keep these stories moving forward. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Awesome. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Bergwin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll be back in two weeks with our next episode, where we will explore the fact versus fiction in another chapter of Lewis T. Moore's Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear Region. Until then, be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching Bergwin Wright Presents on your favorite podcast platform, so you never miss an episode. You can also visit us at the Bergwin Wright House in Wilmington. Monday through Saturday, we give tours of the site, 
that will expose you to a fascinating history of North Carolina and colonial America. And while you're there, you can also pick up a copy of Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear region, which is now available in our gift shop. And be sure to follow the Berguin Wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms, including Facebook and Instagram, for the latest on what we're doing at the site. As a nonprofit, this podcast and all the exciting projects done at the Berguin Wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider making a donation, or better yet, join our membership program with exclusive perks and tours. All the money raised goes towards the further education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site. For more information, visit our website in each episode's description or at bergwinwrighthouse.com. And thank you so much for your support. This podcast is written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to thank Durable Restoration Company for sponsoring the podcast this season. And we would also like to take a moment to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their continued support. See you next time on Berguin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore.